Good afternoon. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. The city of Taunton approves a Mashpee Wampanoag tribal casino. Scott Brown and Elizabeth Warren continue their public sniping over debates, while Scott Brown's family, including his wife Gail, appear in a new television ad declaring Scott a great dad and a man above all others who understands women. Hmm. Plus, David McCullough Jr. tells Wellesley High School seniors they are nothing special. We've got all that in our political segment today. And later in the show, Aerosmith bassist Tom Hamilton is here. I'm joined in the studio by Avi Nelson, political analyst and talk show host. And just wheeling his way in from New Bedford is former mayor there, Scott Lang. Welcome, Scott. Good to have you here. Put on your headsets. Make yourself comfortable. So over the weekend... um, David McCullough Jr., who's the son of the famous uh, historian David McCullough, delivered a, um, a commencement address at uh, Wellesley High School. And it's been picked up by all the national media. It's all over CNN and everybody else this morning because of what's being perceived as, uh, I don't know, I guess controversial remarks. Although when I first heard it, I, I, I thought it was pretty straightforward. Anyway, here's a little bit of that. And here's what t- we'll uh, get everybody's take here on what they think. None of you is special. (laughs) You're not special. You're not exceptional. Contrary to what your U9 soccer trophy suggests, your your glowing seventh grade report card, despite every assurance of a certain corpulent purple dinosaur, that nice Mr. Rogers and your batty Aunt Sylvia, no matter how often your paternal caped crusader has swooped in to save you, you are nothing special. And let's just say it went on from there. Avi, what was your take on this? Well, the on from there, he did, in the end, really the the context was, so make yourself something special. So it wasn't quite, you know, if you just listen to that excerpt, makes it sound like that's all he did, run them down. You can you can have a couple of takes on this. One is, look, it's graduation day. This isn't the day to run down what the kids have done. On the other hand, it did set up the message that he wants. And I must say that of all the high school, this isn't a college graduation, right. a high school graduation. When was the last time a high school graduation speech got national attention? So if for no other reason than that, it was a creative approach. And David McCullough, a teacher yeah. in high school, is now on the national and probably international news. I thought he tried a little bit too hard to yeah, be kind of cute. Yeah. What, what was your take on it, Scott? I read it last week. It was going around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had done a number of commencement I'm sure speeches. I've never started by telling you know the <laughs> graduates they're not special. I what I took from it was uh, he was indicating if uh, uh, if they don't realize that everyone is special, they're not you know they're not going to make a dent in the, uh, the problems that uh, face all of us. But I I felt it was very well written. I I wouldn't have given it as a commencement speech. I also think that those. Uh, it's funny you you give it to that group of uh, kids. Uh, you know, someone in New Bedford reads it and starts out by thinking to themselves, "Is if uh, Scott Lang went to New Bedford and gave that speech to New Bedford High, it would have been national news for a completely different reason." That's true. You know, so I so my gut feeling on it was that uh, interesting message, fun would have been a great essay. I don't know that I would have given it as a high school. So he could speech. not have done that speech in New Bedford because it would have been perceived as being. Uh, Critical in a completely different way. That, Absolutely, because you know these kids don't come from privileged backgrounds like many of the kids in Wellesley. So, right. Yeah, but but of course, context is everything. He wasn't speaking to New Bedford. He probably wouldn't have given that speech to New Bedford either. And there is something to be said for, you know, the day where everybody gets a trophy. I know, um, <laughs> especially in place like Wellesley, is overdone. The world isn't that way, and there's something to be said for a commencement speaker saying as you leave high school. You'd better understand that. You've had an easier time living in the cloistered circumstances of an affluent suburb of Boston than you are likely to find going on. Even if you're going to a sophisticated university, you may have been a star in the Wellesley High School class. When you get to an Ivy Mm -hmm. League school, you're likely to be right in the middle. Why is this national news? I'm really struggling to figure it out. Because people don't usually tell high school students when they're graduating <laughs> that you're launching their careers going forth to the world. They don't usually emphasize you're yeah. nothing special. I, I also think it, it, it unique from that standpoint, but I also think that uh, we've getting away from, from the day-to-day uh, 
issues that affect, affect high school graduates, college graduates, uh, starting out by t- telling them you're not special is uh, an intention grabber. It's the, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing that makes a statement. If you read the whole speech, he comes around and circles yeah. it pretty well. But to start out, I want every kid who leaves high school to feel that they are uh, extremely special. They have to keep it within a context. So you don't, you, you're not going to get a trophy every time. You're not going to graduate first in your class. But uh, it, it seems to me that I, I approach it differently. You know, I, I want the kids to understand that they bring uh, tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous things to the table. All right. Well, uh, good for him for getting the attention. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I heard somewhere you know, that there's some high school that has a hundred valedictorians. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, it just becomes yeah. so watered down. Yeah, it does. All right. Well, Scott Lang, one of the reasons, one of the reasons we invited you here today was because we knew there was going to be an outcome on the Taunton um, Tribal Casino vote, and of course, on Saturday, city residents endorsed a proposal by uh, the Mashpee Wampanoags, and they approved it by a two-to-one margin. They've proposed a $500 million gambling resort at the junction of Routes 24 and 140. More than 62% supported the non-binding referendum. They're the first municipality to actually pass a casino referendum. What's your take on it? Well, I think it's it's uh, very important for that, for the city of Taunton and for the region. I think that, uh, you know, we had two votes. Uh, we had the... Uh, Foxborough vote, which was based on a on a uh, local election, but they elected people who clearly said they weren't for the casino. And then in Lakeville and and uh, Freetown, casino went down handily. I think in Lakeville nine yep. nine to one. Taunton shows, uh, I think, that there is a place for a casino in southeastern Mass. I think it's going to be an Indian uh, uh, related uh, gambling enterprise. I also think, though, it, it will provide jobs for the region. It's not a panacea. It's going to have to be carefully planned. It's not going in the center of the city, which is a different scenario than in New Bedford. But I think uh, planning is going to really determine whether or not it, it works. It's it's right at the junction of the uh, highways, but it gives an opportunity for rail now, which is very important. And I, I've been pushing the idea that yeah, we do need – Yeah, because that's a tough, tough commute area already, Route 24. It is. We need – you know, I'm, I'm not uh, saying that this resolves the $1.8 billion rail project that is uh, being studied, but I think it does give the ability to bring in a rail service into the area. But but the key on this is uh, a federal, you know, federally recognized tribe, uh, which they are, they still need to have the land in trust. It's still going to take some time. There's still going to be, I'm, I'm sure, a number of different uh, challenges to this. So I think it's a first good step to getting something in the ground. But I don't think it doesn't mean tomorrow the governor's going to announce he's got a compact and, and then they move forward. But it's a good first step. Look, this brings up the traditional challenges between the casino as a moneymaker, a job creator for the area, and the casino as an attractant of a bad element. <clears throat> I know it's just today, I think Mayor Ray Flynn has come out in opposition to the casino. Uh, in point, Suffolk Downs? In Suffolk Downs, Right. So, you know, the, the other thing that always troubles me about this is I, I, I don't see why the Indians should have special consideration. I, you know, this nonsense that, you know, this is why you end up with Elizabeth Warren pretending to be an Indian. Yeah. Because if you're going to get all sorts of benefits <laughs> by yeah, being an Indian, you're going to have some people who are going to find their great-great-great-grandmother. So th- that troubles me. Uh, but look, on net, this is going to be a community decision. And I think, well, Scott is right. I mean, there's ways to go. I think I don't know. ultimately that that one in, I'm, in I'm is probably going to make predicting it. doomsday for all of these casinos. You don't think Absolute, they're not going to be built? Doomsday. Sure, or they're the, going to be built, and no one's going to go, and oh. the poor people are going to get poorer. And all those people, we were down there the other day doing a piece. It was heartbreaking. People in empty hair salons and little family groceries and things thinking that they're going to get these great jobs, Mm -hmm. that it's going to change their life. They're going to be able to pay their mortgage off. It's not going to happen. And to to your point about the Indians, I mean, all right, I understand sovereign nation all that. We did did this decades ago. But they're the ones who are going to benefit from this, not the people of Taunton. Tell me I'm wrong, Scott. Well, here's here's what you have (laughs) to figure. Please tell me. I'm not not a uh, proponent of gambling by any means. But I think that it's a uh, we've we've got a casino in every uh, you know in every convenience store every in, corner in, pretty uh, soon absolutely. So th- the fact is the you know the three the concept of three resort casinos and one of them now appears in a uh, 
a slot parlor and then one of them appears to be a, uh, a designated for uh, a tribe. We gave the franchise uh, of gambling to uh, Indian tribes now three decades ago. Yeah. And the fact is that if, if you want to look at failed policies, look at the United States Indian policy. And one way we thought we'd make it up to them is say, well, we'll allow you to, you know, as a sovereign nation to have gambling in, in the uh, confines of a, you know, normally a geographic unit, which is a state. Uh, I think that the, the casino is going to do a number of things. If, if it's planned and done correctly, it needs to meld into a local economy. It could not go into an urban area unless it's part of a local economy. Uh, the jobs will have uh, – Jobs will be highly regulated. There'll be uh, fair wage jobs with, uh, you know, with benefits. Uh, that's something that we need for that part of the state. Uh, we will not lose the money that we lose right now to Connecticut. We won't lose the money that uh, we eventually are going to lose to Maine and New Hampshire. Um, but the fact is that if if you think you're going to build the economy in Massachusetts on the gambling industry, uh, you're going to be right. very very sorry in the long run. It won't work. But I do think it's construction jobs now. It gives us a little bit of the uh, market share. It'll give local jobs, but it's not going to be a panacea. And if anyone is sitting there saying, "Great, the casino's coming, my life is going to change for the better," uh, it, it'll be no. a job, those, and, and that's those what it'll people be. Waiting to get, have people come into their hair salons, they're going to be going to the salons at the casino, and you're going to be out of business. A couple of things here. <laughs> I mean, One is, I've never understood why <clears throat> the state should be able to have a monopoly on gambling. I mean, originally, gambling was illegal because we thought it was immoral. Well, if it's going to be moral, you have the state lottery, then I don't know why yeah, Why the can't state, anybody hang right. out a shingle? And, yeah. The state doesn't have a monopoly on making lamps. Why should they have a monopoly on gambling? And secondly, to your point, which I think may be accurate, but do poor people have a right to take a flyer and even to make the mistake in thinking that sure. if yeah. they bring an establishment here, gambling casino, my life will be better? And even if it turns out that it isn't, do they have a right to to take a chance on it. Yeah, uh, they, no, they do. But, I mean, right. I think we have blown this up with so – I mean, with with from the governor on down supporting this and saying, oh, we're going to raise $200 million a year in revenue. We're gonna, it's going to create jobs, good jobs, longstanding jobs. What good job? Name me one good job at a casino. Croupier. <laughs> Is that a good job? What could you possibly make as no a croupier? Idea. No, seriously. And then beyond that, it's going to be waitressing and, you know, sweeping up. And you're nodding. It's true. What what good job? Maybe it'll be a union job, a secure job. You're going you know, to get in paycheck. trouble downgrading waitressing. and No, you know. no. But it's, I, I, I said it's not a good job. It, it's a job. There'll be hospitality type jobs. Uh, they, they, I would think they'll be unionized uh, or they'll have a, a wage that's a living wage. It'll provide – if you figure at any given time we've got uh, – say 10,000 people in that general area that are actively looking for work, if this provides uh, 10 percent, 15 percent, that's what it's going to do. It's still going to – it either has to lead to spin. We have to have a uh, – a, a segments of the economy that provide for all types of jobs. If You just can't build uh, you know, the hopes of people up on these, uh, on these uh, three resort casinos. On the other hand – it doesn't make any sense anymore to say, well, in Massachusetts, we won't have any and we'll have the money. No, that's true. Well, the money stays in Connecticut. The problems come back to Massachusetts. There's got to be a blend No, I'm not, ag- I'm not against it. I mean, mm-hmm. knock, knock yourself out. O- open as many as you want. I'm just saying that, that the promises <laughs> that we've made are not going to bear out. I feel quite right. confident any, about that. Anyone who gets up and makes promises, it's fool's gold. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a segment of society. It's going to be construction to begin with. It'll be support services. It'll be jobs at the particular casino, you, you you may very well be right. There'll be a saturation point where the, the numbers may not be as strong as people think right now. Uh, but the fact is that it's, uh, it's only a very, very small piece of an economy. All right. We're going to take a short break. I'm talking to Scott Lang, who's the former mayor of New Bedford, and Avi Nelson, political analyst and talk show host. Up next, more politics, including why both campaigns are so fervently courting the Latino vote. And we've got more on the Scott Brown-Elizabeth Warren race. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
This program is on WGBH thanks to you and Fruitlands Museum. Discover the heritage, nature, and art of New England at Fruitlands Museum in Harvard, Mass. The Concord Band performs Americana music every Thursday evening in July. More information at fruitlands.org. And Orchard Cove, where their substantial updates are now complete. You can see how the new face of this independent senior community in Canton is transforming residents' lives. You can schedule a tour online at orchardcovelive.org. And from members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be? How do you feel about giving money to panhandlers? Do you want to give some help or tell them get a job? If I couldn't find a job when I had a roof over my head, think about how much harder it is to get a job when your address is a drop-in center. I'm reporter Ann Mostu. How deep is the problem of panhandling on the streets of Boston? And how organized are the people in need? This afternoon on WGBH's All Things Considered. The WGBH June Community Campaign is over. Yahoo! And you are responsible for all of its success. For other ways to support your community through WGBH, visit WGBH.org volunteer. And thanks. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. We're talking politics this afternoon with former mayor of New Bedford, Scott Lang, and Avi Nelson, political analyst and talk show host. We were just talking about casino gambling in Taunton and how they passed a referendum in favor of it over the weekend. We're going to move on to some national politics. Um, When President uh, Obama was speaking before – it was a White House press conference actually on Friday – this story has gotten legs. In fact, it's carried through the weekend over until today, which anything that lasts more than 24 hours has to be sort of (laughs) a large gap. So he's uh, responding to criticism that he's been blaming his policy failures on the European European debt crisis. And here's what he said. As I said, we've created 4.3 million jobs over the last two, uh, 27 months, over 800,000 just this year alone. Uh, The private sector is doing fine. All right. So he had to backtrack on that later on. And we got a tremendous amount of pushback from virtually everybody right down the lines when he said that the private sector is doing fine. And later on, he explained what he meant to say that was compared to the public sector, the private sector is doing fine. Well, he walked it back and said the economy is not doing fine. You know, there's one definition of a gaffe that is when a politician inadvertently tells the truth. (laughs) And and I think in in this particular case... I think in this particular case, it was revelatory of where he's coming from. Now, this wasn't the kind of slip where, you know, he said at one point he visited 57 states. It was just a slip of the tongue. Barack Obama does believe in larger government. His proposals for the future reflect the same as those of the past, which is more government spending. Uh, We already have a large enough debt, so that's not registering well with the people But he does think that if somehow we expanded the government, and he went on, talked about mayors and governors, as if they should hire more staff, that that would solve the unemployment problem. Forgetting, I think, or maybe he never knew, that government has no resources of its own. It can only get money from the private sector. So any calls for expansion on the government side, more employment, mean you've got to get revenues from somewhere either taxes or borrowing or printing the money. Well, he's so, also taken credit for downsizing government dramatically over the past three years. So I don't know. What, what, what is the appeal about, Scott? Is it, and, and, and is that any kind of a solution to be hiring in the public sector? Well, it's, it, you know, this, this is, again, one of the – this is like the uh, you're not special. He, um, he said something that he had to back come back around on it, circle on it, and clarify it. But relatively speaking, I think the president was saying that the – private sector is picking up, uh, doing a little better than it was during a very, very bad economy. The economy is still very bad. The economy still, if, if Europe doesn't get its act together, could go back into a, a uh, you know, a double uh, back-to-back recession here. So 
I think relatively speaking, private sector, the market's up, uh, jobs are being created. It's relatively speaking doing better than the public sector because the public sector has had uh, massive layoffs over the last three and a half years. And uh, we do continue to have people out of work. And the people we have out of work are government employees. In some cases, it could be police, fire, teachers. Uh, it can be uh, your city workers or your state workers. So uh, the, the question is, is there jobs for them in the private sector? Or does the public sector need to uh, gear up to provide services? One way to do this is a private-public uh, partnership regarding infrastructure, which will help bring people back to work. And I know the president has been asking Congress uh, to, and I, and I wouldn't call it a stimulus bill, I'd call it an investment bill in infrastructure, working with the private sector, which create jobs and creates, creates as uh, Avi said, a, a uh, uh, more of a tax base so that you have this, you know, you do have revenue coming in. But I think the president misspoke. I think he had to correct it. I also think that the idea of people then pounce on, say he's out of touch, and this is going to be the new campaign theme. People no. aren't going to it, make it's their... Like it's like Romney's silly. corporations are people too, and that had legs no. for a couple of weeks too. This one, this one is going to be played and replayed all through the campaign. You take a look at the last jobs report, <clears throat> net creation of 69,000 jobs. The government lost 13,000. You take those, put those back in. The private sector only created 82,000. To tell, to tell the people out there who are struggling, unemployment went up with the last report. To say that the private sector is, is fine is simply, not only is it wrong, but it doesn't resonate with the people. This is a political gaffe of major proportion. This is worse than Romney saying, I, I like to fire people, which was in context. No, but it's of not worse than saying the bad, corporations are people too, because that s- speaks to his idea that, you know, the, the, no. the economy is, is, you know, it's, it's all about driven by, you know, the big corporate CEOs. And I, I don't of, agree. I think people that, are... It'll corp- hurt them. Corporations hurt are people too is course, a kind I, of esoteric. But, but to say that the... <laughs> pri- yeah, but legally. <laughs> but to say that the private sector is doing fine, the private economy is doing fine at a time like this, is a, a terrible mistake. You know, I don't agree with that. I, th- I think it, it's, a, it's a big gaffe as, as long as you bang that drum and take it out of context and say he, he doesn't understand the economy. When he took office, he was losing 800,000 jobs that first month. They're creating... The private sector now is beginning to create jobs. The economy is still very, very sluggish. In fact, the economy, I think, is, is uh, at any given time extremely precarious. But, and I think the president un- understands that. They need to, uh, in Washington, they need to work together to try and get people back to work. But Romney at one point said, I don't care about the poor. At one point, he said, corporations are people too. At one point, he said, I, uh, I like to fire people. Uh, everyone looked at it and said, oh, my God, how but can you Scott, vote for that? Look, everyone look. looks again. They look at the time. There's five months to go. Yeah. Jobs They'll report forget could, about this. Too. Jobs I, report I could agree. be good next this week. Is going to be, this is going to be played all through the commercials and uh, of course, through the uh, campaign. So this one will not be forgotten. Uh, when he no, said, I like to fire people, there was context to it. It was, I like to fire people who don't do a good job. Now, sure, you can take that out and make a thing of it. I think this is bigger. And as for the... Stimulus program that we talked about infrastructure. Gosh, we already had an eight hundred billion dollar program. If government spending were the solution proposed by the Bush these, administration, yeah, but if government spending <laughs> were the solution to the economic problems, we'd have long since solved it. We're spending enormous amounts of money. We have what a three and a half trillion dollar budget every year. It clearly is not working. This race, if the Republicans do it right, is going to be a referendum on Barack Obama's first term, as it should be. He didn't live up to the expectations he himself set. He said the employment would never go above 8%, hasn't gotten down to 8%. He said, if I can't solve this in three years, this is going to be a one-term proposition. In other words, it should be a referendum. When a president stands for re-election, it ought to be, are you better off than you were four years ago? So let me give you the benefit of my experience real quick, because I was involved in, uh, in creating jobs and building infrastructure and using state and federal money, combining it with the private sector to get things done and, and building things. Did. <laughs> we, did, we did really well. But the, fa- but the fact of the matter is that uh, the president came into an economy that no one uh, dreamed was as bad as, as it, it was at the time. We found out very, very quickly 
after he took office how bad it's been. Uh, the president's expectations may have been higher for himself than they should have been. But people will deal with the reality of it. And a, a quote that took place in the beginning of June isn't going to decide an election in November. There's an awful lot of turf that needs to be uh, covered here before people will make a decision, especially people who are on a swing. And and drumming and showing over and over again a quote isn't going isn't no. well, to be look, the final uh, factor in this. No. I do want to say one thing, though. You've got – our infrastructure is over 100 years old in all our major cities. In the rural areas, it's never been built. If we want to continue to be a power, you're going to have to invest in America. Investing in America means a public-private partnership. The idea that somehow the private sector is going to figure all this out won't work. We need – literally, whether it's water, sewer, whether it's transportation, whether it's IT – uh, anything that need fuel, anything that's needed in our cities to run our economy, those infrastructures have to be rebuilt. Yeah, that's problem, where you put people to work. God, where's the money going to come from for these things? The government is in such debt. I will say this, that uh, you're right, that one remark is not going to determine the election. The election is determined by the sum total of all the impulses and impacts that you hear about a candidate. I just think this is a more significant one than apparently you do. And initially, you started off by saying what, what, what amounts to a blame Bush strategy. Oh, it was so bad when I got in. I don't think that's going to resonate. I think people are tired of hearing that it's my predecessor's he fault. He hasn't said that. But when you say the economy, was, <laughs> the economy was much worse than we anticipated and all that, that's in effect saying, oh, gosh, Bush was worse than I thought. You know, he, he was elected to solve the problem. If he didn't know what the problem was all about, then that's a criticism of his analytical ability or the analytical ability of the staff. You're supposed to get the job done. It's not done. At the, yeah, well, I, I agree it's going to be a referendum on how he's done, but I also think you can't rewrite history. I also know that McCain, right before the recession started, said the foundations of the American economy are okay. strong. And so no one understood how and bad it, it was. And it haunted All right, just moving on to that. I want to get, get to the uh, Elizabeth Warren, Scott Brown race before I move on. Um, Scott Brown's wife, Gail Hoff, is about to pair in two new TV ads that are going to be in airing tomorrow. She was originally from your TV area, Scott uh, Lang. I actually hired her up in Boston working at WCVB. The only reason I bring this up because I think it's kind of odd. We called down to WJLA today in Washington, D.C. She does part-time reporting there. In fact, she was there today. And so she's a news reporter in Washington, and she's, you know, a campaign presence or, you know – She's doing campaign ads. I, I I think there's a conflict there. Um, I agree. There is. It's, it's not it doesn't work. I, I looked at the two ads where one, he's a good dad, and the other, he's a good husband. And, yeah. and I found myself thinking, it, I thought they were good ads in the sense of being good political ads. I also found myself thinking, it's so what? sad. <laughs> well, it's sad that it comes to this. That you have to feed this yeah. this pablum, these the standard stuff of always oh, a good father, and and to trot out the stuff with the female aspiration. He always supported. This is Gail Huff, the wife. He always supported me and my aspirations. Obviously, appealing to the women's vote. It's just, you know, there was not. There's not a mention of policy again. It it's effective politically because likability is important for the vote, but it may explain why we're in the mess we're in. Exactly. I think that the uh, Senate campaign at this point is is uh, so underwhelming as far as substance that uh, I'm wondering if this is another one. Can they just uh, clutch and and run out the clock? And are we going to have a a substantive discussion two weeks into the race, a a month into the race? When the debates begin. They ought to start soon then. And everybody's stonewalling on this. I mean, we're all involved with that here at uh, WGBH. And Elizabeth Warren has agreed to one debate with this large media consortium. Boston Globe over the weekend called for many more of these things. It's not so easy. They, they won't agree to one. We, we'd host as many as we could. But, you know, it's also a very competitive field. Everybody else, I, I like to have my own debate. You know, Dan Ray has asked for one, Jim and Marjorie, you know, NECN. Everybody wants, but they're going to do a finite number of debates. They're going to do probably two on radio. And if we are lucky, a total of three televised debates between now in the general election. That's nothing. nothing. I'll, you, I'll, I'll say something ridiculous. When I, when I ran for mayor the first time, I wasn't, you know, I never thought I'd run for anything, as you know. So I ran for mayor. There were uh, seven debates, and I happily went to all of them because I wanted people to understand who I was and what I believed in. When I won the primary, I challenged the incumbent to six more. 
one a week for six weeks because I figured the voters need to know where we stand on every issue imaginable and they can vote. Uh, the Senate race is not a personality con uh, contest. It should be based on you've got whether it's, as we were saying, the economy, whether it's uh, the, the foreign policy, uh, America, where, you know, where we're going, every intricate issue that faces, uh, faces the country in the Senate. People have a right to know where they stand and how they'd handle it. They ought to get out. They should get away from this personality-driven, uh, you know, ridiculous campaign and this industry-driven campaign. It's strictly an industry-driven campaign. People each day are deciding, you know, it's, it's like a pit crew. But let me guess, your, your incumbent said no thanks. Well, the incumbents it, never wanted to. Well, be. you know what I do. You know, I know. No, the, the incumbent had to show. I won they the did. primary. Yeah. Had to show. My point is, is uh, set it up, uh, Emily. Set up the debate. Let everybody know comes. a few weeks ahead of time, right. and let's go and give them a list of questions, but, and let's uh, go. But it get, gets back to that. The reality is that much of the political process, much of the the, the process of winning votes, revolves around personality. Yeah. I mean, that's what Barack Obama. That's how he won it last time, and so. I agree with you in terms of the substance of what you're saying. It well, that's ought to how be Scott on the Brown won it too. That's Let's right. Face it. And and by the way, that if he wins it again this time, it it'll probably be <laughs> that way. That's why there's such eagerness and emphasis now, each side trying to define the other candidate early on, because they are aware that if you can define for the Brown campaign, if you can define Elizabeth Warren as an elitist, if you can define Scott Brown as being in lockstep with the Republicans then the substantive issues don't influence as much. All right. Avi Nelson and Scott Lang, thanks so much for joining us here for Politics Monday. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Up next, Aerosmith bassist Tom Hamilton is here to explain why after 150 million records sold, four Grammys, and a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he's still at it with Steve Tyler and the rest of the gang. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show from 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and One SIM Card mobile voice, text, and data service for budget conscious international travelers. One SIM Card lets you manage the expense of using your cell phone while traveling in over 200 countries without any commitments. Online at onesimcard.com. And the Zyterian New Bedford. Catherine Knowles, Executive Director. Just about a month ago, somebody called in and said, well, I listen to your sponsorship every morning, and to be honest with you, I've never been there, but because you support GBH, I'm going to make the trek from Boston to see the show. True story. To learn more, visit wgbh.org slash sponsorship. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, an interview with Alex Katz. His day-glow realism preceded the pop art of Andy Warhol. From landscapes to portraits, you can see his steady-eyed perceptions of modern American life. We'll talk to him about his life, the creative process, and his retrospective now on view at the MFA. That's Today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. The WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid high on a trip for two to the Windy City, the Aegean Sea, the Caribbean, or to any other JetBlue destination. You might even find yourself with tickets to see the New England Patriots take on the Miami Dolphins. Be a hometown hero. Support public broadcasting and secure a great deal all at the same time. It's easy to do at auction.wgbh.org. Homeless in Harvard Square. Is asking for spare change a scam? Or are panhandlers an important reminder of the homeless among us? We look at panhandling on the streets of Boston this afternoon on WGBH's All Things Considered. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. So what do you do when you're a member of one of the most successful American hard rock bands of all time, when you sold well over 100 million albums, when you have four Grammys and your name is forever enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, if you are Aerosmith bassist Tom Hamilton, you keep at it. And this weekend, Tom, Steve, Tyler, and the rest of the boys kick off an 18-date North American tour. And Aerosmith's Tom Hamilton is here. Welcome, Tom. Hi. Do you look forward to the tours? I do. Yeah, really? I really do. Um, it looks like such a grind. 
You know, it it is, but um, you know, it's not like when we first started when we were in vans and you know staying at <laughs> really you know hotels with sticky rugs. Um, you know, we stay in great hotels now, and uh, we travel really nice. But there is something that's uh, disorienting after a while when you're away and you can't run down to the refrigerator or you can't run down to the car for something that you uh, left in the back seat that you needed. So, um, yeah, you don't have every th- a lot of things that you think of as being at hand are not at hand when you're away. But otherwise, it's a blast. Is it, I mean, it's yeah. 18 cities. I, I guess the first one is <clears throat> Minneapolis, is it? Right. But yep. I mean, is is everyone completely different? Do 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 you have a formula for the concert, or is everyone in every audience completely different? Um, there's like regional variations. <laughs> <laughs> well said. People in the Northeast um, are great crowds. Well, well they People, know you too. That's your crowd. Well, that's true. But um, the Midwest, you know, the Midwest has always been a really dedicated area of uh, you know rock fans. Uh, the southeast, uh, but on the on the coast, you know, the the crowds are great, but they're just not as uninhibited as they are in some of the um, you know out in the country. So do you mix it up <clears throat> depending on where you are? Uh, we usually usually the basic framework of the set um, pretty much takes a form toward the beginning of the tour, and then we have uh, maybe four places within the set where we plug in different songs from night to night, but. Um, the basic structure of it usually stays mostly the same for the tour. So you've been at it since 1970. I have to ask you about the 60 Minutes profile that aired back <laughs> in March. You're laughing. Yeah. I mean, you, Rick Perry, Joey Kramer, everybody was so, was so um, honest about how you felt about Steven Tyler. Did you get mm. any uh, pushback after it aired from him? No. Uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> They came. We were in Bogota, Colombia, when um, four out of the five of us did our interviews, and they came down, and I could smell what was going to happen. Yeah. It was going to be the typical, you know, oh, they were huge yeah. and they got wasted. Now they're much better. They're yeah. huge again. That story, and so we, I, you know, we called a little meeting with the producer and said, "Look, are you going to do the regular old rock band story like that everybody else has done a hundred times? Are you going to really?" do something interesting about the relationships in the band. And unfortunately, they took our advice. Actually, they did. They, they did. They did and a story about the relationships within the band. They did. Um, and, um, you know, I thought – I remember Brad and Joey and I were, were starting our interview, and um, I'm, I forget what question it was, but it was a question that, you know, was very deep, Yeah. something that we would usually artfully dodge and go around – but Brad gave this really, like, incredibly honest answer, and so the other two of us are kind of going, okay, I guess yeah, that's, that's sure the tone. Did. So, yeah. yeah, we did talk uh, a lot about the uh, the joys and the frustrations of the relationships in the band. And uh, But, you know, then later on when it came time to interview Stephen, they took, you know, everything that yep, we said. That's what that they might, always do. Yeah, and, and they just barraged them with it. Oh, my God, when I saw the show... Uh, on the air, I'm like, oh my god, the poor guy. And but I thought he did a, I thought he did a good job of defending himself, even though a couple of things he said I thought were, you know, I beg to differ on a yeah, couple of things. Yeah, he said they ride my coattails. Yeah. My perfectionism is what got us here. Mm-hmm. Um, the perfectionism part. That's Stephen is a, a perfectionist beyond perfection, which. Um, it's not always a blessing for a person. You know, you think when you when someone's a perfectionist, you think, oh my God, that that means they do an unbelievably good job at whatever they do. But no, sometimes people who are super perfectionists can't be satisfied with anything. So um, Stephen uh, has been like that a lot, and yeah, he has raised the standards beyond what we might have reached if we didn't have a personality like his in the band. It's I mean- definitely true. One of the you know, downfalls, it had a lot of ups and downs, but that um, Laura Logan got into with Brad Perry Mew and everybody else was this episode when um, Steven Tyler fell off the stage in 2009 and just how, you know, annoyed, that's not the, the word that Perry used, but, you know, that, that, that Steven had gotten addicted to, um, you know, 
prescription drugs and, you know, he was off the, he said, and then Steven Tyler says, oh, I got, I was, my feelings were really hurt that none of you spoke to me for 27 weeks. First of all, was that true? You didn't speak to him for 27 weeks? I didn't keep count, um, but I know, <laughs> no, it, it was a long time and we, we weren't annoyed. We were devastated. I was actually home uh, recovering from my second bout with cancer, but, you know, when I got that call that the rest of the tour had to be canceled, um, it was the same feeling as if I would have been out there on stage with the guys. And the reason it was so devastating is because it's happened over the course of our career many times. And, you know, you get to a point where, you know, in life, we, we don't have 30 more years for everything to come back together. Um, you know, if something really goes off the rails, those consequences are much more immediate because we don't have as much time to get things back together. So, yeah, we were really freaked out, and we did not know how to constructively um, communicate that in a way that we thought Stephen would respond to in a positive way. So we just said, we, you know, we have to get a message to him. And um, so you all collectively. So decided we did. That yeah, we called, we we blanked him and we gave him the cold shoulder. And you know, I really hate the fact that that was what we decided to do. Uh, but I don't think. What we decided to do was uh, that unusual as opposed to what other people would do in that situation where where you work so, so hard to get something up to a point and then it's just gone in, in one night. So, yeah, we were, we were really freaked out and, um, you know, that was a very wounding thing for Stephen. I, you know, I feel really bad for the pain that he felt. Um, you know, it was everybody was in a very painful situation and uh, – that's unfortunately, you know, we're not PhDs in how to deal with this stuff. So the way we dealt with it was the way we felt we had to respond. And uh, so his response later on that year was to say, okay, I want to go out and be Brand Tyler. I don't want to play with you guys. Right. He took the uh, American yeah. Idol gig without consulting any of you. Well, that was actually later on. I was mean, it? Um, what happened uh, was. Later the, that same year, we had some shows that we absolutely could not cancel. So a few months later, Stephen was, was better. I was feeling better. And we went out and did a show in Abu Dhabi and um, two in Hawaii and one in San Francisco. And we didn't talk during those, you know, the period of those dates. But when we were up on stage, it was the same really fun, you know, intense vibe as mm. it always is. So, you know, then we got back from that and, you know, we just kept hearing reports that Stephen was, you know, really having a tough time hanging out with people he didn't really need to be hanging out with. And and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we got the news the same day as the public at large got the news that he was going into Betty Ford. And I was overjoyed. You were? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I never believed that we had played our last Aerosmith show, but it was as close to that as it's ever been. And um, I was overjoyed for him because I was really afraid of where that would lead if something didn't stop it. And so it was a relief for me to know that he was getting help. And sure enough, you know, when, after a couple of months, he started putting out messages and saying, look, you guys, I really want to get together. I really want to say how bad I feel about you know, our, the, losing the tour last year and um, what we can do to move forward. So it was really great. We had a big powwow and we figured out a way to keep going. Is he completely straight and sober? Sometimes it's it's hard to for us, you know, the <laughs> lay people to judge because he's so yeah. out there. Yeah, no, he's he's doing amazing. He's really, really doing amazing. He's completely sober. Well, I mean, I haven't given him a, a urinalysis <laughs> lately, but as far as I can tell, yeah. yeah. So when did the when did the whole American Idol thing come up? Because that was part of the sixty minutes two thing where they oh, said, yeah. "Well, he he just did it." Well, uh, you know, I think I was talking about um, before he went out to Betty Ford and the months when it was very in between, where it was very unknown about what was going to happen with the band. Is I think he started asking his people about, "Let's, I want to do something. Come on, let's go get something together." And there was talk about this. Uh, possibility of being a judge on American Idol, and then uh, we never heard a thing about it until we were, you know, we were back on the road, and we were on our way out to play LA, which to me is always a, uh, you know, a sort of a 
great thing, but a not so great thing because Hollywood tends to bring out traits in people's personalities that sometimes aren't so great. And then all of a sudden, we were out there in the middle of the tour. We're cranking along. We're we're vi- our vision of the band continuing uh, is intact. And then we found out literally three days before he signed the thing that he was going to do it. So um, there was a real element of shock there. And you know, I thought I'm just like happy-go-lucky guy, so I didn't really have a big reaction <laughs> about it. But um, you know, we started really thinking about what that meant, the implications of it, and. We started to wonder. Because it's time-consuming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like over half the year. Yeah. And um, we're thinking, holy crap, here we are. We've got to start thinking about the same things we had to think about six months ago. You know, uh, are we going to be able to maintain our, you know, level as a band, you know, and, and what's the public's reaction going to be? Because we didn't know then. And when are we going to finish the album, which we've all been desperately wanting to finish for a long time? Um. So, you know, he would people would ask us about it, and he would hear our complaints, and then he'd go and say, "Oh, they're jealous, and they're riding on my coattails," and that's all just par for the course stuff that we've been living through for forty years. But it's just now the way we have reality shows. There's cameras everywhere, so it's just more out in the open now. It's out in the public, the public eye, all uh, our arguments. And just <laughs> <laughs> talking to Aerosmith uh, bassist Tom Hamilton. Well, he claims that American Idol bolstered album sales that put you back in the limelight, that Aerosmith has never been more popular as a result of his appearances on American Idol. Yeah, it's pretty unmeasurable. I mean, um, obviously, there, you know, when you're talking to that many millions of people, you're going to bring notoriety to whatever you're affiliated with. So there's definitely been a lot of press, whether... We see it in how many of the new albums, you know, where it goes to on the charts or how the tour does or anything. It's not uh, readily apparent. You're not sure whether there's a correlation between his, you know, renewed popularity, not that he ever fell out, but, you know, his appearances, which really appeals to young people, as I think, you know. I mean, I'm I'm not Mm. an American Idol watcher, but a lot of young people watch it and might get swept into the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, well, we'll see. You know, we're waiting to kind of find out about that. We haven't seen any real, like, definite indicators that it's, like, elevated our career in terms of statistics, numbers, you know, ticket sales and all that. But mm. um, we finally have this album coming out, which is very exciting for all of us. And I think that's going to be the thing that's really going to bring us up to the next level. And then the American Idol thing may kick in to sort of turbocharge that, but we'll see. <laughs> when, you know? when is the album coming out? It's coming out in the fall, um, probably September or October, and we're just finishing the uh, last mixes uh, literally today or tomorrow. Um, the thing is, we, we were going to put it out in August. Uh, now we're going to put it out in October, so now I worry about People who you know wanting to go in and constantly tweak it before it comes out. Uh oh, I, I just yeah, be, I hate that. Yeah. I want it to be done. Edit, re-edit, yeah, and edit. No, right. I understand that. It's crazy. You can wait you can, too long. You can go right until the day before you give it to the record company. You know, there was one little clip from that sixty minutes thing, which I think kind of jumped out at everybody. After all the braggadocio of Steven Tyler, he was talking about how he really seeks the approval and the opinion of Joe Perry. I think I have a little bit of a clip of that. Joe Perry's response. There were dressing rooms that just got destroyed. I'd be like two silverback gorillas, and they, they like tear branches and rip up the ground and, and scream and yell, but they never actually get any closer than this, you know? That was a little bit confusing because actually, what, what the setup to that was that um, Stephen Tyler had been saying that when he comes up with a line or even a collaborative line from all of you, and if he changes it or comes up with a different idea, there was a particular line he was talking about, he seeks opinions from you and he says he really values values those so, so that seemed genuine didn't you think oh yeah and it is and you know Stephen Stephen is definitely very grateful for the band and for everything that the band has done um, he has moments where he can be cruel and he can be unreasonable and um, you know we've just learned it's like riding the rapids and we've learned how to do that fairly well um because a lot of times that his extremism will result in something being better than any of us thought it could be, you know, a song or uh, 
a show or whatever we're working on um, at that point. So, I mean, there's always a balance. And, um, you know, just after doing it for so long, you start to gain wisdom and you start to know uh, which things you should let bother you and which things you need to listen for the value in what's being said and move forward. I mean, he's blown up his personal life, as many of the members of the band have, for various reasons, a lot of them involving substance abuse, alcohol abuse. You've had your uh, travails with that, too, but you've hung your personal, your family life together. (laughs) How? (laughs) I think I'm just kind of an easygoing kind of person, really, and... You know, as far as the chemistry of the band, it's it's one of the elements that has to be in there. You need the real flamboyant um, perfectionist, Stephen, and you need, uh, you know, that ultra-cool flash Joe Perry, that, that character. But then, you know, these are gems, and gems need to be in a setting, and um, it's the whole thing, the whole picture that really is the thing that's gone forward for so many years, and, you know... I, I had to get used to sort of, um, you know, this in the press. A lot of uh, it's the Joe and Stephen show, and the rest of the guys are kind of just like you know crew guys that mm-hmm. I get to yeah, hang exactly. out with them, and that uh, hurts a little bit. But I, I know what my role is in the band and how I've contributed to the band achieving what it's what it has. So uh, I've learned to be okay with that and not bothered by um, you know other stuff that I hear. You, you have to. You have to get to a point where you you can't let everything in the press or in the public bother you, or that you'll spend your day being bummed out and, every but, day. But know? just in terms of hanging your family life together, mm-hmm. did you just mm-hmm. feel like you were always grounded and you knew that that was that was always going to be a safe um, place for you? I you know I've always yeah, uh, you know without really sitting down and planning that and saying okay this is how I'm going to maintain my sanity. It's just. You know, my family is something that I've been so fortunate to have constructed around me that, yeah, I do have a place to go where I need to get away from, you know, the the joyful insanity. So <laughs> joyful thank insanity. thank you very much to my family and for all the Terry, waiting around they have to do for me. And your kids, who's, and I know your son is in, in the rock business himself, and we don't discourage that, do we, Tom? No, we don't. Right. We, don't. we don't. Tom Hamilton, always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. Should you toss money to your friends who invite you to their beach house? What about that member of your spouse's family who shows up for the weekend unexpectedly? Our etiquette expert, Robin Abrams, on vacation etiquette. And stay with us now for the Cali Crosshey Show coming up next. What's it like to have a retrospective exhibition of your work at a major American art museum? She asks Alex Katz, whose exhibition at the MFA has Boston buzzing. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, our special one-on-one interviews continue with Rabbi Harold Kushner, author of When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's tonight at 7. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon listening to Aerosmith. <laughs> Can't say baby, well, be in a year.